Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. So uh, this morning, we're going to continue in our worship uh, uh, by looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And so this morning, we have an opportunity to hear from our brother, Eric Mingle. So I'm going to invite him, if he'll go ahead and come up and bring God's word for us today. Thank you, brother. Well, good morning. Uh, It is an honor to to be here this morning and to share with you from God's word. As David said, um, we're going to continue our study uh, in the Lord's Prayer this morning by looking at the, Je- the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, uh, the, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Um, but before we do, I just I want to make a confession, maybe, um, <laughs> maybe for all of us, that, uh, but certainly if true for me, um, and that's just prayer is hard. <laughs> Would you agree? Uh, prayer is hard. I, I have this on good authority. Uh, one, my own experience. Uh, I've been a Christian since I was 12. I've been a professional Christian since I was 22. It means I'm a pastor. <laughs> uh, and I'm almost 36, and I can tell you that it's, uh, it was hard then and it's still hard now. <laughs> um, and the other reason is because the disciples had to ask Jesus themselves how to pray. So I think those two give us good authority to, to say, to confess aloud, prayer is hard. Okay, but it's also encouraging. Uh, not, not that it's hard, um, but that we're in the, that's hard for all of us and even the disciples. Um, but we should be encouraged um, because, because they asked the question, how do we pray? The Lord answered them and he gave them this prayer, which means that although prayer is hard, it doesn't have to be impossible. Amen? And so what I want to do this morning by looking at the Lord's Prayer is ask three common questions Three questions I find really common for a lot of people um, and hope that in studying the Lord's Prayer, it will become less hard. Okay, the three questions are this. One, how should we pray? Two, what should we pray for? And three, maybe the most common question, what difference does it make? Okay, so question number one, uh, how should we pray? Uh, Right from the start, Jesus gives us two examples uh, well, uh, in our reading this morning, one example, but if you back it up, he gives us two examples of how not to pray. We shouldn't pray like hypocrites. Uh, we just shouldn't be them. <laughs> uh, we shouldn't pray like them for sure, though, uh, and we shouldn't pray like pagans. Um, he gives us two examples of what not to pray like, and he gives us one example of how we should pray, namely as children who are loved by their Father. Let me, let me read again for you verses. Uh, I'll read from verses 5 through 9. Jesus says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received the reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus says, don't, don't, don't pray like these people. Don't pray like these people who only pray when they come to church, <laughs> but when they leave, the conversation stops. Right? Don't be like these people. 
And he also goes on to say, don't be like the Gentiles, or another word for that is pagan. Um, for us, pagan is such a demeaning term, uh, it, rightly so. Um, but for, for them, it just meant anyone who wasn't, who wasn't Jewish, right? And especially those who were part of the Roman um, population. Uh, when you pray, he says, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then instead like this. And here's the example he gives us. Our Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I'll be honest with you, whenever I read this passage of Scripture about the hypocrites and the pagans, uh, it always makes me laugh a little uh, because uh, before I learned to pray the Lord's Prayer, I was a total pagan. And by that, I don't mean uh, the wild life that I was living. Um, I mean my prayer life was utterly pagan. Um, I wonder if you remember how old you were when you first began to pray, like regularly. I think I was probably just 10 or 11 years old. So prior to becoming like an official Christian, uh, I did begin to pray. I began to pray every single night before I went to bed. I would pray a whole litany of things and for a bunch of people. And sometimes it would take me up to 15, 20, and then eventually even like 30 minutes like 10 years old, praying for like half an hour before I go to bed. I hated going to bed. And not because I wanted to like keep watching TV, but because I knew that I was going to be stuck in prayer for a long time. But it wasn't because I was tearing in prayer for my fourth grade classmates. It was actually because I had this silly idea in my head that if I didn't pray my prayers flawlessly, and by that I mean without stopping or stuttering, that God wouldn't like them, and he wouldn't hear them. And so out of fear, really, I would lay there in bed, lay there in bed pray the same prayer over and over. I was sure that God heard me. I was a total pagan. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I think that these prayers were sincere, and I'm pretty confident that God heard them. But it's very clear that I did not know how to pray. And it's obviously because I just didn't know who God was. Because if I had, I wouldn't have been trying to perform for God. Let me say it again. If I had known who God was, I wouldn't have been trying to perform for God. I mean, this is my whole life. I've been trying to perform for God. I wouldn't have been trying to perform for him as if he was some kind of cosmic slot machine. Instead, as Jesus said, I would have been coming to him the way a child comes to his father who knows that he is loved. And the reason is really simple. It's because performance is not the basis on which we are accepted by God. I know for many of us, this, uh, this just sounds like old hat. You probably have heard this your whole life, but it bears worth repeating. In Christianity, we don't perform to uh, we don't perform or obey to be accepted by God. Uh, sometimes we like to say, well, that's religion, but this is a relationship. Well, I like, I, like, I like that Christianity is a religion. It's a religion too, okay? But it's more than a religion. It is a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And therefore, we don't obey or perform to be accepted by God. Rather, we are accepted in Christ, and therefore, we love him, and we want to obey him, and we do. 
Let me just say this again, really simple, because this is it. In Christianity, we don't perform or obey to be accepted. We're accepted, and therefore we love and obey. There's no performance to be made with God, especially with prayer, which is why when Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them to pray, he began by giving them these words, Our Father. Now, I know that this is also a very familiar idea for, my, for probably most of us in this, in this room. Uh, for many of you, you probably learned the Lord's Prayer early on. Maybe it's like me. I actually learned the Lord's Prayer not at church, uh, but actually on a, on a baseball field. <laughs> because we all pray it right before the game or the football field. The funny thing was, many years later, becoming a Christian and reading this prayer in the Bible, I was like, oh, man, I've been saying, these, I've been saying this prayer wrong the whole time. Because before a game, we just say it as quick as we can because we're just treating God like a cosmic slot machine here and we just got to put this prayer in real quick and then maybe he'll pop out a win for us. But I was just, the whole time I learned this prayer on the ball field, hearing other people pray it, and my wife will tell you, I have terrible ears. I can't, I've never passed a hearing test in my life. And a lot of times she'll say something to me and I actually won't understand what she said and I'll just replay the sounds that she, I replayed those sounds back in my head, and I'll try to piece it together and then respond to her. And basically, that's what I was doing with the Lord's Prayer. I was just repeating the sounds I was hearing and then putting it together. But uh, later on, when I became a Christian, I read, I read this prayer and, one, learned how to pray it correctly, but two, learned just how powerful of a prayer it really is. So again, this is really common and really familiar for, to us, this idea that God is a father, um, and although the idea of God as a father, a lot of times in Christianity we like to say, oh, well, the Jews did know God as father, but that's what we provided. We helped them understand that God is a father. It's not true. The Jews knew that God was a father. Israel was the firstborn son of God. That's what he said of them whenever he delivered them from Egypt. Okay, so it's not an uncommon thought that God is our father. But I, I can't find a single prayer prior to Christ where he's addressed primarily as father. And therefore, although God as father was not unknown among the Jewish people before Jesus taught us, it was certainly not as common as Jesus made it to be. In fact, the name, uh, Jesus uses the name father 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount alone. 17 times in three chapters, he uses the name father. And, and he'll actually go on to use it 44 times in the entire gospel of Matthew. For Jesus, this is clearly the most fundamental way that he relates to God. Let me say that again. For Jesus, Father is clearly the most fundamental way that he relates to God, which means something really important. It must mean that that's how God fundamentally relates to us. And that changes everything. That means that even when we struggle to relate to God as Father, it doesn't stop Him from relating to us as children that He loves. Just think about that for half a minute. Maybe you didn't have a good relationship with your Father. Maybe you didn't know Him. And for you, thinking about God as a Father, just you like the idea of it. It's a pretty thought. Christianity is full of pretty thoughts. Okay, but you just can't. You just can't identify with that. Here's the beautiful thing. Because Jesus says that he is fundamentally a father, it doesn't matter whether or not you identify with him as father or not. He identifies with you as your father. And that changes everything. Most importantly, it means that we don't have to wonder 
if God likes our prayers. As N.T. Wright beautifully put it, when we come up out of the waters of our baptism, God is speaking the same thing over us that he spoke at Jesus at his. That we are his children. You are my son. You are my daughter. And with you, I am well pleased. And that means that when we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, he hears our voice just as clearly as he hears his. Because he's our father now. And prayer is the gift that he's given all of us. Not only to believe in him as father, but to experience him as well. Which brings us to our second question. If we are to pray as children loved by our father, then what should we pray for? I love this. I love this question. Not least because this, is, this, is, this was the subject of a great debate between me and my mother when I was 18. What can you pray for? My mom says, you can just pray for God's will to be done. Okay, well, that's in the, that's in the passage. That's in the scripture. So she wins. <laughs> but I was like, no, no, no. You can pray for anything you want. James says, you have not because you ask not. So clearly you can pray for whatever you want. The irony in our debate was that I was arguing with great force as if I had this great prayer life. <laughs> Um, I clearly hadn't had one yet. Um, uh, this was not one of my points. This one's free, okay? Let me just answer this question. Uh, uh, th- let, me, let me settle this debate between my mom, especially while she's here, before witnesses. She was right, and so was I. <laughs> and this is how I know. This is how I know, because in the garden, this is a little heavy, okay, but in the garden, Jesus prays what? He says, Lord, may this cup pass. He's talking about the cross, if there's any other way of getting out of this alive, he says, let it be. He's praying for what he wants. But then he follows up by saying, but not my will be done. Thy will be done. Okay, which means that you can pray for anything you want so long as more than you want what you want, you want God's will to be done and you're willing to submit your will to his. So long as that's true about you, you can pray for anything you want. And you should, because he's your father, and he loves you. And kids who know they're loved are not scared to ask for what they want. Amen? Okay. Well, all that was free. Um, Not part of the sermon. Uh, What should we pray for? Uh, The list is not exhaustive, but in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives us six answers to that question. Um, Really, up until Saturday, which is yesterday... I was writing a sermon to answer, to, to, describe, to, to flesh out all six of these prayers for you. And then David said, hey, you don't have to do that. Oh, thank God. I was like, we're never going to get out of here before Easter if I do. He was like, I know, that's why I took a whole sermon series. Why don't you just pick one? I was like, done. Of course, it ruined my Sabbath, but grace, grace. Okay, we don't have time to unpack the entire prayer line by line, but what I would like to do is take just a few minutes to unpack just one of these prayers so that we can see just how powerful the Lord's Prayer really is. And the one I want us to look at is the prayer for forgiveness. The prayer for forgiveness. There's a reason why I want us to think about this just briefly. Um, I want us to think about forgiveness because this is the Lenten season. And in Lent, we're preparing for Good Friday. And Good Friday is the day that Christ went to the cross. And the cross is intimately tied up with our forgiveness. So if we will really just slow down and meditate on this particular prayer, I think it can help us to really embody and really 
feel what is happening, what God is doing for us in and through Jesus on the cross. And the second reason is because we live in a, a very graceless culture. And we, it's, in fact, it's not this, you know, 20 years ago, you talk about forgiveness because uh, more of a psychological reason. Like, you know, everyone was talking about uh, forgiveness. Even, even, even the secular world was talking about forgiveness for our own well-being. We need to forgive, right? Because it's too much for us to, to, care, to go on living life without forgiveness. And that was absolutely true. But today, it's really weird. Today, people are talking about forgiveness as if it's an injustice, as if you can't have justice and forgiveness at the same time. And therefore, we live in a very graceless time. If you don't believe me, just turn on the news. Any news will do. We live in a very graceless time, but the church of Jesus Christ cannot be graceless. It's founded upon grace. Okay. So the fifth petition in this prayer comes from verse 12. Jesus teaches us to pray using these words, Father, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Some of your translations might say trespasses or sins. All the same thing, all the same thing going on here. Father, forgive us our debts, even as we have forgiven our debtors. And then in verses 14 through 15, he provides the writer. He explains the importance of this prayer by saying, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Okay, so there are two things going on here. One is a prayer for forgiveness, And the other is an implicit command to also forgive those who have sinned against us. And what I want us to see here is that this particular part of the Lord's Prayer, this prayer for forgiveness, is pivotal in helping us to remember that when we pray, it's not to some cosmic Santa Claus or slot machine up in the heavens. It's to our Father, to the one that Jesus is teaching us to call our Father. I'm going to do this by making three quick observations about this prayer. First, Jesus teaches us to pray for forgiveness uh, for the most obvious of reasons. It's because that we're sinners. (laughs) Uh, Because at some point, we've actually all said, not your will, but my will be done. This, of course, was the problem of Adam and Eve, and it still is our problem today. Uh, a lot of times, especially when I was working at Rice University, people ask, you don't really believe that, you know, those stories about, like, you know, gardens and trees and talking snakes and all that nonsense, do you? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And, and not just because Scripture says so, but because it's like the most empirically verifiable fact in the whole Bible. It's that not only did it happen, but it happens. It happens every Day, whenever we choose to be our own kings, our own queens, and to live under our own wisdom, living by our own definitions of what's, wrong, what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil, we always make a muck of it. And when we do, sin and death always follow. You want to know what's wrong with the world today? Go read Genesis 3. <laughs> I was going to say Genesis 1, but actually that's, that's the good part. <laughs> All right, do you, you get that? Let me just, again, pause for a moment and just, I used to always wrestle, what is this whole thing about the, the tree of good and evil? Like, does God not want us to know good and evil? And actually, he does, right? That's actually why he gives the rest of Scripture, especially the law to Israel, is that they may know what is good and evil and may choose good and therefore choose life. He wants us to learn his wisdom, how to live wisely, 
that we may live. But what we often do, and what Adam and Eve did, and what we do and repeat ad nauseum, is we take for ourselves the right to define good and evil, as opposed to submitting to his definitions of right and wrong, and we claim for ourselves our own. And that is what's wrong with the world today. There's not a single problem that you can point to where there's a conflict where you can at least on some level describe this conflict by saying, he thinks this is right and she thinks this is right. Because they both have decided for themselves to define good and evil. And neither one of them have submitted to God's will, to God's definitions for for what is right and what is good. That's what's wrong with the world today. And that's why we all need forgiveness. We always make a muck of it. Sin and death always follow. And therefore, we're all in need of grace. Grace that can only come by repentance, confession, and forgiveness. Okay, that much is obvious. You wouldn't think so. But that much is obvious. Uh, The second reason is less so. Jesus teaches us to pray for forgiveness because that's what it means to be part of God's family and to know him as father. The problem is we so easily forget that and want to slip back into a mode of operation that treats God as a cosmic Santa Claus or slot machine, where if we just do enough good things, he might forget about all the bad things we've already done and give us the grace that we so desperately need. But that's just not how grace works because it's not who God is. Think back with me about the prodigal son. I wish we had time to unpack this whole parable, but many of you may be familiar with the story where the son, the youngest son of the father, basically comes to him and says, hey, dad, I kind of wish you were already dead. So can I just go ahead and have what's mine? Right, because inheritances are things you get after Okay, yeah. Okay, so I kind of wish you were already dead. Can I go ahead and have what's mine? And then he takes his inheritance. He blows it in wild living. He finds himself living on the streets and comes to his senses and comes back home, hoping that his dad will take him back, not as a son. He's, he's not an idiot, but as a hired hand. And what, is, what does his dad say? What is it, how does his dad respond? With a shovel and a pair of work gloves? <laughs> no with a ring and a robe and sandals and a party. And why? Because God is not a cosmic Santa Claus. He's not a cosmic slot machine. He's our father. And that's what it means to be part of his family. It's a way that we make things right isn't by performance. It's by grace. One of our favorite singer-songwriters, Marcus Mumford, has an old song first and best album, where he says these words. He says, it seems I've burned all my bridges. But you say that's exactly how this grace thing works. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive with the restart. That's the gospel. Don't get me wrong, though. Sin is still Serious. God's laws are not arbitrary, though. They are descriptions of reality from an infinite perspective. And when we sin, we not only break those laws, but we break the heart from whence they came. Can I say that again? God's laws are not arbitrary. 
They're not, they, but instead, they are descriptions of reality from an infinite perspective. And when we sin, we not only break those laws, but we break the heart from whence they came. In the words of C.S. Lewis, whom I will quote often and without apology, Amen. I name my son after him. <laughs> Clive. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Insider joke for the fanboys. Okay. In the words of C.S. Lewis, it costs God nothing, so far as we know, to create nice things. But to convert rebellious wills and to forgive us, it cost him crucifixion. It cost God nothing, so far as we know, to create nice things. But to convert rebellious wills and to forgive us, it cost him crucifixion. But even then, he paid it with joy in his heart. Because that's what a father does. Yes, he's a king. Yes, he's a judge. But he's a king and a judge who just so happens to also be our father. And as committed as he is to justice, he's equally committed to us. He's equally committed to those whom he loves. And the only way that he can be reconciled with estranged children is through forgiveness. And to that end, Jesus teaches us to pray for forgiveness because that's what it means to be part of God's family. That's what it means to know him as our father. Okay, final one. Admittedly, this is the hardest one. Jesus commands us to forgive those who have sinned against us because that, too, is what it means to be part of God's family and to know him as father. Matthew 6, 14 and 15, again, he says these words, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, then neither will your Father forgive yours. Now I'm going to level with you. This is not the Jesus that I'm used to thinking about. This is not the Jesus that we normally hear about. The one who's all about forgiveness with no strings attached. But there it is, guys. In black and white, there's no getting around it. If we have received grace, he expects us to give it. If we've been forgiven, he expects us to forgive. And if we do not, if we withhold the healing grace of forgiveness for others, then we effectively seal ourselves off from receiving the healing grace of God's forgiveness too. That's such, a heavy, that's such a heavy truth. But Jesus is not about to relax the tension that's created. It cost him his life for you to be forgiven. He's not about to relax the burden on you to extend the forgiveness that cost him his life to others. As the old saying goes, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. And so we must forgive others. It's the only way to live now that we know who God is and therefore who we are too. But let's be honest. If prayer is hard, which is how we started this thing, (laughs) forgiveness is harder. 
Forgiveness is harder. So very briefly, because I'm running out of time, let's talk about how we can do this. I'm going to give you three ingredients. Ingredients is the key word. These are not steps, okay? (laughs) I have no plans. (laughs) I'm not smart enough, okay? Also, because each of our, our histories are so different, there's not one single plan for a reconciliation that fits all. But I will tell you, I believe there are at least three ingredients that must be present in your life if you're actually ever going to be able to forgive anyone. Okay, really quickly, I'm sorry I can't do more. (laughs) The first one is identity. We've got to learn to name the pain that we've experienced. I don't mean your identity, I mean the identity of the pain. Because forgiveness isn't forgetting. You've heard that before, but there's a really good chance at some point you've, you've forgiven someone by forgetting what they did to you, but you've not actually forgiven them. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is about surrendering our right to get even. Forgiveness is surrendering our right to get even to a God who promises to make all things right in the end. That's why it's not forgetting. It's just relaxing the claim that we have. But unless we name the pain that we've experienced, we can never surrender it. And if we never name the pain that we've experienced, we will carry its effects with us everywhere we go until one day it comes out sideways. And then it will be us who ends up needing forgiveness for the pain that we've spread. You get that? If you don't deal with the hurt and the bitterness that someone else has caused, it's not even your fault. If you don't deal with it, though, it will come out sideways and you will hurt someone else and you will be guilty of that sin as well. It's not your fault. It is your problem. But he's given us a solution. Learn to name your pain. That's hard to do as well. Because that involves slowing down and, and, and reliving it a few times. Telling the story, telling your story, and it's hard as hell. But it's the only way to not drink the poison. The second ingredient is confession. We've got to learn to confess our sins. One of the greatest difficulties in forgiving others is thinking that somehow they're worse than we are and therefore less deserving of forgiveness. The Yale theologian Miroslav Volf puts it this way, forgiveness fails because I exclude my enemy from the community of humanity and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Forgiveness fails because I exclude my enemy from the community of humanity and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But if we learn to confess our sins honestly and thoroughly, by the grace of God, we will begin to rediscover our sinfulness and their humanity in ways that makes forgiveness possible. Final ingredient, and this brings us back to where we began. We have to learn to pray for those who have hurt us. 
We have to learn to pray for those who have hurt us. Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God, and that includes forgiveness. We have to pray for his love and power to forgive if ever we hope to be able to forgive them from our heart. Which brings us to our final question. What difference does prayer make? There's so many different ways to come at this question. What difference does prayer make? We could talk about this academically all day long and nerd out and talk about the metaphysics of prayer and be known closer to actually being able to forgive those who have sinned against us or to be forgiven ourselves. But I've got a story that I think will help us get closer. Many years ago, some of you guys probably remember this uh, story about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You ever heard of that? Um, Nelson Mandela, after 27 years of being imprisoned in South Africa, uh, was released from prison and elected president. And on the inauguration platform, he did something wild. He, uh, He invited up one of his jailers and the archbishop, Desmond Tutu, to announce this new government panel he was going to launch called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Now, what the TRC, as it's called, effectively meant, it was really simple. It meant that if any police army or police officer or army officer had ever, in the years of apartheid, committed any crime against a South African family, then they could come forward face their accusers, confess their crimes, and receive pardon with no repercussions. People were outraged. They were outraged at the great injustice that this was going to mean that people who had committed horrible crimes against humanity were going to be let go, were going to be freed with no repercussions. But Nelson Mandela knew that more than South Africa at that moment needed justice, It needed healing. And that can only happen through some form of forgiveness and pardon. So one of the men who came forward was a man named Van de Broek. And I'm going to edit this story. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to give it a PG rating. A man named Van de Broek came forward to confess some crimes that he had committed against a South African family. Uh, the, the short of it is that he killed an 18-year-old boy. Him and his fellow officers shot and killed an 18-year-old boy. And then eight years later, returned to that boy's home and did the same to his father in front of the mother. Made her watch. And to destroy the evidence, they, they used fire to destroy the evidence. All of it. Her loved ones included. He came forward to name his crimes and to receive pardon. I want to read to you what happened when he did. The courtroom grew hushed as the elderly woman who had lost her first son and then her husband was given a chance to respond to Mr. Vanderbroek. What do you want from Mr. Vanderbroek? the judge asked. She said she wanted Vanderbroek to do a couple of things. She said she wanted him to come to the place 
where they had destroyed all the evidence of their crimes and to gather up all the dust so that she could give her husband a proper burial. And she added another request. She said, Mr. Vanderbrook has taken all my family away from me, but I still have much love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can be a mother to him. And so that Mr. Vanderbrook can know that he is forgiven by God and that I have forgiven him as well, I would like to embrace him now so that he may know that forgiveness is real. Spontaneously, someone in the courtroom began to sing Amazing Grace as the elderly woman made her way to the witness stand. But Mr. Vanderbroek didn't hear the hymn because he'd fainted, overwhelmed at the experience of grace in action. Now, I've told you that story for two reasons. The first is to answer the question about the power of prayer. Although the story doesn't recall for us how this elderly woman lived her life prior to the court date, it is inconceivable to me that she could have responded with such forgiveness had she not been praying her entire life, Lord, forgive him his debts. I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me my debts, even as I have forgiven him his. Because that's what prayer does. It changes us. As C.S. Lewis again once put it, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. Prayer does not change God. Prayer changes me. And here's why. Because feelings follow actions. Feelings follow actions. Again, Lewis on Christ's command to love our neighbors as we love ourselves says this. The command to love our neighbors is not a command to like them. Thank God. The command to love our neighbors is not a command to like them because you don't always like yourself. But despite not always liking yourself, you always save hope for your own redemption. And that's what it means to love your neighbor. It means to save hope for their redemption as you save hope for your own. And that's what prayer will do for you. If day in and day out you begin to pray for those who have wronged you, how you feel about them will begin to change. You may not wake up one day and decide that you trust them, but you most likely will wake up one day and recognize that they are just like you. They're not an enemy, they're family in need of grace. They're not a stranger, but a brother or a sister in need of grace. And just like this elderly woman, if you pray this prayer every day, you just might find yourself one day wanting to be the one to give it to them. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us. The second reason I told you this story is to demonstrate the power of the gospel. And with this, I'll close. The famed poet W.H. Auden once penned, nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. In the same way we might say, nothing can move us to such compassion 
that is possible. We who must forgive demand the same, which is exactly what God in Christ has provided for us, the miracle we need to forgive. You see, just like the elderly woman, when it came to the world that God so loved, he had the right to demand justice too. But instead, he sent his one and only son to take our sins upon him so that whosoever would believe in him would not suffer their just consequences, but would know the love of a father. And so on the cross, Jesus prayed this very prayer of forgiveness, not for himself, but for us. So that when we come forward like Van der Broek and confess our crimes against God and humanity, we too might experience the warmth of his embrace and hear his voice singing over us a new song as he creates new possibilities for us to be healed and freed from all the pain that we've incurred and caused. And when we do, something truly wonderful happens. We find not only the desire to forgive our enemies, but the power to do so as well. To run and work. To run and work, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings, it bids us fly but gives us wings. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And we need you. Day in and day out, waking and sleeping, Lord, we are helpless. We need your grace. We need your power. We need your love. Lord, not only to confess our need for grace, but to give it as well. But for this reason, you came into the world, Jesus, to seek and to save the lost and to create one new humanity in your image. And so, Lord, we open our hearts to you to receive all the grace that you have so that in filling our hearts to overflowing, we may have grace and forgiveness in abundance to forgive those who have sinned against us. Lord, make us agents of your grace and instruments of your peace, Lord so that you, Lord, may receive the reward for which you so preciously gave yourself, God, that you may receive your family healed, forgiven, and whole. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org.